we're going to go through the story of Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. And I know that some of you are going, oh, come on, Pastor Chris. Really? How many times have we read this story? I mean, I learned this story when I was growing up in Sunday school. I've heard it hundreds and hundreds of times. And, and in fact, you know, I, if you're my age, you remember there was a, an old song. Remember that song, Joshua Fought the Battle of Jericho? Can you guys sing with me? Josh fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho. Okay, so, you know, and, and so we think, oh, you know, come on, we know this story. But, you know, I'm wondering how well do we really know this story? In actuality, it's a great old song, and I love to sing it, but it doesn't get it right. It doesn't get it right. And I think as we look today with fresh eyes, to this story, we're going we're gonna to realize that there are a lot of things that we've maybe never seen in this story before. One is, it really wasn't much of a battle. <laughs> Two is, Joshua didn't do any fighting, and I think we're going to see that it was Jesus who did the fighting. And three was, Jericho, a Canaanite city, was no match for God. And four, we're going to see that this actually foreshadows a much bigger battle that's going to be fought. And so uh, as we look at this, let's get a little background here. Let's remember that the children of Israel had been wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. And now they had finally crossed over the Jordan River. And they were preparing to take the land that God had promised to give to them. Now the mantle of leadership had been passed from Moses to Joshua and we're told at the beginning of chapter 5 that Joshua had all the sons of Israel circumcised. Now we got to realize these were grown men. These were not children that were being circumcised. And why did that have to take place? Well, remember that the whole generation before had passed away because of their disobedience in the wilderness. This was a new generation of young men. And these men had not been circumcised at birth as they should have to be set apart for God. And I think really it speaks well of Joshua that before he took Israel into the danger of, of battle, that he took time to consecrate the men of Israel. And this really took great faith on Joshua's part, if you think about it, because it left the army of Israel completely vulnerable, at least for a few days, if you know what I mean. They weren't able to defend themselves. If they were attacked, they were in deep trouble. So it took great faith on Joshua's part there. Then after the circumcision, there was a time of celebration of the Passover. And so, of course, during that time of Passover, there was time for the people to worship God and to pray. Now, this was a really good start when you compare to the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and all the disobedience. This was a good start to their entrance into the promised land. And in fact, um, after years of eating manna day after day after day, provided uh, miraculously by God, they were finally able to eat of the fruits of the land that they were entering in, this land that had been promised as a land of milk and honey to them. So let's go ahead and begin our story. And if you're in Joshua 6, you can just turn back a page here. Uh, and we're going to start here in Joshua 5, verse 13. So Joshua 5, 13. It says, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Now, this question that Joshua asked is a legitimate question here. After all, if, if he was one of Joshua's men, he was actually in the wrong place. He shouldn't have been there. Uh, but he could have been one of the soldiers from Jericho who could have snuck out. Joshua really didn't know. Well, in verse 14, the man says, he said, no, and I, I like that. No. I mean, he could have just stopped right there. No. Meaning what? You're wrong, Joshua, on both counts. I am neither one of your men, nor am I one of your adversaries. He says, rather, I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. 
And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? Verse 15, the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So we have to ask the question here, who is this man that Joshua encounters? And I think that this is the most important detail of this entire passage, this entire story of the battle of Jericho. And I'm going to submit to you today that this man, the captain of the host of the Lord, and the host of the Lord means the angels. So you could say the captain of the angels is the pre-incarnate Jesus himself. It's what we call a Christophany, a time where Jesus appeared in the form of a man before his incarnation. Now, why do I say that? Because you might ask me, well, are you sure about this? Couldn't it just be uh, Michael, the archangel, you know, the one that was the warrior, the battler? Well, that's good thinking, actually. As a first reaction, that is good thinking because in Daniel 12, 1, we're told that Michael, the archangel, did have a responsibility to look over and look after the people of Israel. So that would be a good first guess. But there's really four clues that I want you to look at that are going to expose the identity of this man. Number one, if you look at it, you see that this man receives worship. Now, remember that as human beings and even as angels, we're not to receive worship. If you go into the book of Revelation, remember John you know, comes upon this angel and wants to bow down and Worship and the angel says, No, no, I'm just a servant just like you. And they're not allowed to receive worship. In fact, the one angel who wanted to receive worship got himself into a little bit of trouble, didn't he? So angels are not allowed to receive worship. This cannot be an angel. Uh, when we speak of angels as supernatural beings, not just as the word messenger. The second clue we get here, notice that the exact same language that was spoken to Moses at the burning bush is the language that is used. Take off your sandals for you're on holy ground. And if you go back and listen to Pastor Michael's message on the burning bush, you'll see the case that he makes that in the burning bush was the presence of Jesus himself. The third clue we have, and this is a great one here, Joshua addresses the man, and when he says, my Lord, he uses the term Adonai, Adonai. Now, there's, you know, the three words that we hear the most um, in the Old Testament, of course, speaking of God, is Yahweh uh, and Elohim. Elohim being a plural word, by the way, which is our first indication that we have a Trinitarian God. Also, Yahweh, but of course, those uh, vowels are not in there. It's just the consonants that the, that the Hebrews use. But in this case, a very seldom used term, Adonai. Um, Zodahates and Strong's, both Greek and Hebrew scholars, describe this word as a masculine noun, use a masculine noun, by the way, for those that today want to say, well, can't we call God a she? It's a masculine noun used exclusively for God. And it denotes supreme power and supreme authority. So my Adonai. And then if you would, the fourth clue, this is, this is one you may not have picked up on very easily. If you would, turn to Zechariah chapter 14. Zechariah 14. Zechariah, by the way, is just two books to the left of Matthew, if you're searching for it. Zechariah 14. And... Um, you can read some of this a little bit later. I want to focus on verse 3 here because this is where the clue lies. Zechariah 14, verse 3 says this, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Now, the King James Version translates this a little bit differently. It says, as when he fought on a day of battle rather than when he fights on a day of battle. And this is important. The translators of the King James did so, I think, with good purpose. The, the Hebrew word here, lakam, 
I'm not very good at Hebrew, but lakam is translated 59 times as a past tense word, fought. And I think in the context here, you'll see that that's appropriate. So you would read it, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought on a day of battle. And this makes sense because if you read the context, what's happening here is Zechariah is prophesying concerning the day of the Lord. And he's speaking of the future battle of Armageddon. And he's saying in verse 3 that it will be Jesus who fights that battle of Armageddon. And it will be like when he fought on another day of battle. Now think about that. Do you remember any other time when Jesus fought a physical battle? Remember, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he said, you know, Peter, put down your sword. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. No, you won't find that anywhere else. Only here in Joshua do we have an account that we could say Jesus was fighting a battle. And if you were to go to Revelation 19 and and look at the battle, the final future battle, you'll see it's quite similar in two ways. One, it's not much of a battle either. And number two, the enemy is completely destroyed. So I think we can confidently come to this passage and say, this was Jesus speaking to Joshua. And thus the title, Joshua, Jericho, and Jesus. So let's go ahead now into chapter 6 and and start in verse 1 here. Joshua 6.1 says, Now, Jericho was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out and no one came in. Now, this was pretty typical of of a city that was going to be besieged upon. They would shut the city up to defend the city. But notice, too, it it says that it was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. Um, The sons of Israel had a reputation. Uh, the, The people of Jericho knew that they were coming and that they were going to uh, have to go to battle with um, the sons of Israel. And there was a fear um, of the sons of Israel. So they shut the city up. Then verse 2 says, The Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. Notice that. He calls them valiant warriors. Now, I think it's important here to look at this and say, Chapter 6, verse 1. Remember, there were no chapter breaks in the Bible. That was done for our benefit. So this is a continuation of the conversation that had already taken place. But verse 1 is a parenthetical statement, just letting us know the city was shut up. But then the conversation continues. The Lord said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand. And we need to see that this is one conversation that Jesus is having with Joshua here. But in this case, it's interesting because it says now here that the Lord and the term Lord here is the term Yahweh or Y-H-W-H, as the Hebrews would say, the name, because the name was so holy they wouldn't pronounce it. So now it says that Yahweh is speaking. And you go, well, isn't that the Father? And I think we at times get confused about this. You know, oftentimes when we see the word God, we'll think of the Father when we really should be thinking of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And sometimes we think of Yahweh and we only think of the Father. But in this case, this term, and I think if we go back to the burning bush and uh, Moses said, who do I say uh, is sending me? And he says, I am that I am. And Jesus used that same term, only the Greek version, I am. So this is proper because Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is God. You know, I just have have another conversation. There are a lot of people who struggle and say, well, the Bible never teaches that Jesus is God. And I'm like, really? Did you just read what I just read here? Jesus is God. If, If you compare it, flip back to Philippians 2, if you would, real quickly. Philippians 2. Just a few books to your right. Well, more than a few. (laughs) Philippians 2, starting in verse 8. Compare this term and what was being said here to Joshua to this. In Philippians 2, starting in verse 8, it says, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. 
For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the time, or at the name, excuse me, of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is Lord. We see that term Lord, that's who we think of. Jesus Christ is Lord, and every tongue will confess that at one time in the future. So it's Jesus, who is God, who is speaking to Joshua. And Joshua learns here that this battle is already won. Before it's ever started, it's already been won. The future has already been predicted, and it will come to pass. The Lord has guaranteed this victory. The Bible knowledge commentary says about uh, this word, I have uh, given, that that the tense of the Hebrew verb is prophetic perfect. I love that. Prophetic perfect. I have delivered. It's a done deal. It's already happened. You see, in God's vision, it's already happened. He's seen it. He knows it. And according to his foreknowledge, it is already done. But for us, it's describing a future action as if it were already accomplished. So God has declared the victory. It's been assured. So next now, Jesus is going to lay out the strategy of this so-called battle. And I think it's very interesting when we look at it. I'm sure you know it well. So starting in verse 3, he says, You shall march around the city, Joshua, you and all the men of war circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also, verse 4, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people will go up every man straight ahead. Now, before we discuss the strategy, let's remember something here. Joshua, as we read about his entire life, Joshua was a great leader. First, he was a great follower, was he not? He was second in command uh, when Moses was the leader. And what a great, I, I like to think of him as, as a, a great assistant coach. You know, from all my years of coaching, I would love to have a Joshua with me. But then he became a great leader as well. And um, we're told in Exodus 17 that Moses instructed him to choose men to fight against the Amalekites. And so Joshua did that and he was successful. Uh, he was a great leader. He was Moses's handpicked uh, successor. You can read about that in Deuteronomy 31:23. His task was to bring the Israelites into the land of Canaan and to conquer the peoples of that land. And all told, altogether, Joshua conquered six nations and 31 kings. That's a pretty good leader, isn't it? He conquered six nations and 31 kings. That's a record. I'll bet General Patton would have been envious of that record. He would have liked to have been known to have conquered six nations and 31 kings. Some of you young people going, who is General Patton? I know. Okay, get the movie, read your history, old blood and guts. Now, so it wasn't like Joshua was not capable of coming up with a battle strategy, a battle plan, one that could win. He was. But in this case, Joshua was not going to be in charge of this plan. Jesus was going to be in charge of this battle plan. And, you know, when you look at it at first glance, it seems like a really strange strategy, doesn't it? But, you know, in everything that God does, he has meaning and he has purpose. And so we're going to see that in this strategy. So we have to ask ourselves some questions here about this strategy. Why? Why was the ark there? What about the seven priests? What about the seven ram's horns? What about seven days total? What is all of this about? What is this strategy that God has here? Well, it seems to me that God just really wanted to let the people of uh, Jericho know that God was going to be in this battle. 
If we start, and you, you know, most of you know, that the number seven represents completion or what? Perfection. And so we see some sevens in here. Completion or perfection. Now we have seven priests, ministering priests, and they're going to blow this seven number of horns uh, perfectly. And by the way, it's interesting to note what these horns are. They're ram's horns. Now, when the Israelites were to go into battle, there were other horns that were to be blown. They had these silver trumpets that were to be blown. You can read about that in Numbers 10. That was the ones they used for the call to battle. So this is very different. They're ram's horns, seven, the perfect number of ram's horns. Normally those ram's horns were used for different calls and especially the call of Jubilee. Do you remember what Jubilee was? Jubilee was a time of rejoicing because in a sense, all bets were off. Land was returned to its owners and and uh, uh, slaves were set free and, and all of these kinds of things. So these were the horns of Jubilee. And by the way, according to Joel 2, 1 and 15, these will be the same horns, the ram's horns, that will be used to announce the day of the Lord, the coming of Christ to settle all things. Now, as for the ark, most of you know that the Ark of the Covenant, which of course was later discovered by Indiana Jones, <laughs> that the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence. So again, if you look at this, this was a clear announcement between the ram's horns, the ministering priests, and the Ark of the Covenant that God was going to be present in this battle. So for six days, the army of Israel was going to march around the city of Jericho one time each day. For those six days, God was letting these Canaanites know, I am here. And that I, God, am going to be leading this particular battle. So let's continue on in Joshua 6.6. 6. It says, so Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant and let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Ark of the Lord. Then he said to the people, go forward and march around the city and let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord. Verse eight, and it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward and blew the trumpets, and the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord followed them. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the Ark while they continued to blow the trumpets. Verse 10, but Joshua commanded the people, saying, you shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, shout, then you shall shout. Now, that's interesting. So as they marched around for those first six days, they had to be absolutely quiet. I wonder if that's why only the men were allowed to march around the city, but I... Oh, I know, I've got to be in big trouble. <laughs> Just kidding. But they were not to shout until the time and the day they were told to shout. Verse 11, so he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Now Joshua rose early in the morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew the trumpets, and the armed men went before them, and the rear guard came after the ark of the Lord while they continued to blow the trumpets. Verse 14, thus, the second day they marched around the city once and returned to the camp, and they did so for six days. Now, I want you to put yourself in the place of the soldiers. There had to have been soldiers standing on the walls of Jericho looking down upon this. And seeing what was going on. And we don't know for sure if the Canaanites understood the meaning of the ram's horn. Or even the priests 
marching with them. They may or they may not have, but the ark itself had a pretty good reputation for miraculous things happening surrounding it. And it was a good bet that the Canaanites were pretty well aware that the ark must mean something having to do with God's presence being there. And so you got to ask yourself, what were they thinking as they were standing up on the wall, watching these men circle around the city once a day for six days? You know, they would have been expecting if they were going to attack, they would have been looking around going, well, where's the ladders? Where's the battering rams? Where's the ramps that happen when you're putting a siege on a town? What, where is all that stuff? They didn't see anything like that. And each day as they were circling around, they were probably going, okay, where are they going to attack? They keep coming all the way around. We don't know where are they going to go in here? Where are they going to try to attack us? And then each day they're probably going, okay, today's going to be the day. Today's the day they'll come and today they'll attack. And then he didn't do that. You know, it must have been a little bit unnerving as you were staying on that wall watching this going, what is going on? When are they going to attack and how are they going to attack? By the way, just as a side note here, um, if you do some research on this, most of the scholars agree that it took probably about one and a half hours to three hours to make this whole circle. Um, pretty good amount of time. So for six days, day after day, the same thing, but no attack. Now, kind of a side note, but not really here. If this routine began on the first day of the week, a Sunday, which I believe it did, and I think there's some biblical evidence for that. I think it's highly likely. <clears throat> but if they began that on Sunday, the first day of the week, then what day was the seventh day on the Jewish calendar? It was the Sabbath. And even if I'm wrong on that, this still took place for seven days, which means somewhere along the line, they were marching. And most likely, I believe, again, it was the seventh day where they marched seven times, perfection, um, to complete this task. Well, wait a minute. How is that right? Weren't they breaking the Sabbath? So for those people that you sometimes come into contact with that are so adamant about the Sabbath, um, remember that Jesus said in Mark 2, 27 and 28 that the Sabbath was made for man and man for the Sabbath and that he is the Lord over all. He is the Lord over the Sabbath. And when Jesus says on the seventh day or whichever day it was you march, then you march. Amen? And Jesus is in charge here, and he'll decide when to march and when to attack. Well, verse 15, it says, Then on the seventh day they rose early at the dawning of the day, which, of course, if it took at least 90 minutes to go around, that would need to happen early in the day, and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day they marched around the city Seven times, no other day, just the seventh day. At the seventh time, when the priest blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Past tense, has given you the city. So our first question there would be, well, what did they shout? What did they scream? What did they yell? And we don't know for sure. Some scholars say it's likely that it was the same type of shout that armies would shout when they went into battle. You know, you see all the movies. What do, what do armies do when they go into the battle? They always yell, right? They always shout. So that's a possibility, but I'm not sure that I am going to go along with that. Since the horns were the ones that sounded the call for Jubilee, again, the time where basically all debts were canceled, um, you know, it was a time of freedom, a time of joy, I wonder if the shout wasn't a shout of rejoicing. I wonder if it's possible that they were shouting praises to the Lord, a celebratory type shout. Hallelujah. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hosanna in the highest. I wonder if that wasn't the type of shouting that they were doing. 
Again, we don't know for sure, but I think it's a possibility. Let's skip down to verse 20 and continue the story. So the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and donkey with the edge of a sword. As I said, it's, it's not much of a battle here. You know, we actually don't see any even recording of resistance here. We don't know exactly what happened, but it just says they went in and took the city. There's no casualty report other than the enemy. Now, I want to stop for a moment here because I know that for some of you reading this, you really struggle with this idea that they went in, they took the city, and they destroyed everything. All the people, young and old, it says. All the animals, everything. And I know that it's, it's hard. And we should wrestle with this idea that God ordered this city to be completely destroyed and everything in it. And of course, some people want to use an incident like this to attack God and say he's a monster. How could anybody do this? How could a God of love do this? And look, I don't have time this morning to go into a long discussion on this. It takes you know, a lot more time and, and thought just on this one particular area. But I do want to say this. We need to remember something here. Jericho was a Canaanite city. It had been promised to the Israelites, and the Lord had given instructions to drive these people out of the land. And we have to understand that these people were wicked, evil people. If, if you can think of one example, you would think of maybe Sodom and Gomorrah as one of those. And so God has ordered these people to be destroyed according to his foreknowledge that they would never turn from their evil. Remember, there was another time when God destroyed everything. Why? Why did he destroy everything in the flood? According to his foreknowledge, he knew that the evil was so great that they would never turn and repent from their evil. And this is the same type of situation. God also knew that if they didn't destroy these people, that they would influence the Hebrew nation to turn away from God and turn towards idols. And of course, as we read further on in the Old Testament, we know that this is exactly what happened. That the Hebrew nation was influenced to worship strange idols and turn away from God so often. But it's important here to note that Joshua led the people into obedience, that the people marched in, that they took the city, that they did what God had told them to do. After 40 years of so much disobedience in the wilderness, they crossed over into the Jordan, and in their first battle, they did what God told them to do. And of course, God delivered to them just as he promised he would deliver. Now, some of you are already thinking, but wait a minute, if you read on a little bit here, there was a little glitch, and that's true. There was one family mentioned in chapter 7 that didn't obey God. Uh, there was a ban placed on the, uh, the, the booty in, in Jericho, and it was supposed to all go to God, and one family didn't follow that, and so there was a glitch there. But overall, the children of Israel obeyed God in this situation. They did what they were told to do as led by Joshua. So I think if you kind of reflect on the story this time, maybe you heard some things that you hadn't heard before. Maybe you see this story in a little bit different light than you ever have heard it before. And, and so as we go through that, we have to say, okay, well, what, what is it that we're to take away from this now? What should we learn from what happened here at Jericho? And I think there's a whole lot of application for us here, because if we think about it, the whole story of the journey of Israel all the way through is for our benefit. It's included in Scripture so that we can learn from it. First Corinthians tells us that it's meant to be an example to us. 
And if you think about the 40 years of wandering, the 40 years of wandering by the Israelites is really a picture of us before we come to Christ, before we are born again. Just as they were dominated during that time by their sin nature and by their fleshly desires, which is why they were so often disobedient, why they so often whined to Moses, just like we do before we come to Christ, they were dominated by that sin and flesh nature. And we are dominated in that same way. We are in bondage to our sin nature before we come to Christ. It's our time of wandering as we... Um, do not yet have a nature that's born again. We do not have a spiritual nature. But now we think about this. In that 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, we know that God miraculously provided for Israel so many times. We kind of don't think that way. We think, well, before I was a Christian, you know, God wasn't doing things for me. Well, that's not true. I promise you, if you look back on your life, and I know I've looked back on mine, and I think of all the things I went through before I came to the Lord, I realize that God was looking out for me the whole time. I just didn't know it. I just didn't see it. And so God provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. Why? Because he was desiring to draw that nation into a loving relationship with him. A relationship that would bring about obedience to God out of their love for him rather than the futility of just trying to obey the law. And in that same way, God draws us to come into a loving relationship with him based on his grace towards us. You see, the crossing over of the Jordan is not as some old hymns and songs might speak of. It's not a picture of us crossing over from this earth to heaven. That's sometimes the idea that we get. But instead, it's a picture of us crossing over from spiritual death into spiritual life by our faith in Christ. And it represents us taking that step of faith, believing that Jesus has already won the victory over sin by his death on the cross for our salvation. So it's a picture of us taking that step of faith into this new life in Christ. It's a picture of us entering into a life that will be controlled by the Holy Spirit rather than by our flesh. So what lessons, again, can we learn from this particular event? Well, lesson number one. I want you to see that Joshua went into a battle that God had specifically called him to and one that God had already ordained the victory in. And why is that a lesson for us? Well, I, you know, I think it's important for us as Christians to really only enter into the battles that God calls us to enter into. And I think there's a tendency for us today to enter into lots and lots of battles that may not be ones that God has specifically called us to fight. Um, and I say that, and I don't want to get too specific here because I think some people might be offended, but... I just want you to think about, have you ever felt like you've been drawn into a battle that's somebody else's battle and not your own? You know, especially today with the amount of communication that we have, you know, you can get on Facebook and honest to goodness, within an hour on Facebook, you can probably be called at least into 15 to 20 battles. Amen. Join my cause. You must do this. And I'm talking about Christians here. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about Christians um, who, who put that out there. And look, it, it's probably a great cause. Not always, but probably most of the time, they're great, great causes that you can get called into. But you have to ask yourself, is this a battle God's called me to? Because you cannot fight every battle. Believe me, I know because I've tried. 37 years in the public school, I tried to fight every Christian battle there was, which is why I spent so much time in the principal's office. So it's easy to get drawn into a, a battle, a cause that might be a good cause. It might be a Christ-driven cause, but it may not be your battle. It may be that God calls other people to fight that battle, but not you. And I think you need to make sure 
that you spend time in prayer reflecting on any battle that you're going to go into and make sure that God has called you into that battle. Now, the Holy Spirit may lead you by someone's encouragement into it, and, and you get there, and that's good. But it's not always. Sometimes it's just the flesh that wants to do that. So Joshua here was able to stay focused. He fought the battles that God led him into and drew him into. And I think we need to do that. And I think if we don't, we usually set ourselves up for failure. Have you ever done that? Have you fallen into, okay, I'm going to get into this. And then you get in there and it's like this utter failure. Um, I could give you example after example in my life where I've done that. Um, I'll just give you one quick one. I thought for a while I should be drawn into the battle of street evangelism. And um, I remember going out one night on Main Street, and I was really going to get after this again. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do this. We should all do this. But I, I, I was not called into this. And so to make a long story short, went out on Main Street, Huntington Beach. All I did was spend two and a half hours trying to keep some drunk guys away from the people who were actually witnessing the people. And then I got back to my car and realized I'd parked in the wrong spot and I had a parking ticket, an expensive parking ticket. And I kind of, as I went home, go, okay, God, this is, this is not the battle you've called me to. You have people out there doing this. And this is not the battle you've called me to, just as a quick example. Second lesson we can learn here. When God's called us into a specific battle, let's remember that he is there. Look, any battle you go into, God is there with you by the power of his Holy Spirit, amen? The Holy Spirit dwells inside you. When God's called you to battle, he is there. He's never not there. We can be assured that God is there. His presence is with us. He never leaves us to fight on our own. And guess what? Victory is going to follow. Victory is going to follow. How do we know that? By faith in God's word that the ultimate victory has already been won. Now, I want you to understand, it may not always look like this particular victory. It may not look the same at all. This victory was easy to see. You walk in, you take the city. But sometimes those victories don't look like that, but they're still victories. I think, and it's, it's going to be Missionary Month in March, and we had Holly up here, and I've been so blessed to, to walk along Holly in this journey that she's had into the life of, of mission work. And I think of all of our missionaries, missionaries all over the world who have been spending their lives battling in a foreign country, in, in an environment totally different than they grew up in. And, and I know some of them go and their, their greatest hearts to desire is to see people come to Christ. That's why you go on the mission field. Yes, you go sometimes to do dental work or medical work, but ultimately the call, the battle is to bring people to Christ. And how many go on the mission field and they begin to feel defeated because maybe a lot of people aren't coming to the Lord. Maybe it's a small number. Maybe it's one. And they, get, they feel like they've failed. But, you know, I don't believe that to be true. If God has called you into that battle, the presence of the Lord is going to be with you. He's not going to leave you. And the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. And his will is going to be accomplished. You know, God may send a missionary to save one person. Jesus left the 99 to go save the one, did he not? Jesus went all the way to Samaria to talk to one woman. Now, of course, the result of that was many more came to Christ. But in this case, part of the reason that Joshua had to go in and take Jericho was to save Rahab. Did you ever realize that? That was part of the mission, whether he knew it or not. He had to save Rahab. Why? Because Rahab is in the line of the Messiah on Joseph's side. Rahab had to be saved. God may save one person by a missionary, and his will has been accomplished, and victory has been won. Lesson number three, use God's strategies and his battle plan. You know, I think so often we come up with the idea, and we say, okay, God, I've come up with this great idea and this great plan. Now you bless it. <laughs> you ever done that? Um, I think of the old Keith Green song, and I like that song, and it has a lot of truth to it, and it, it was this. Uh, it was, um, gosh, I just went, flew right out of my mind. 
Just keep doing your best. Pray that it's blessed. And Jesus takes care of the rest. That's a great song, but I think it's a little bit out of order. We need to pray first before we get started. We need to ask God, what's your plan? What's your strategy here, God? And you know, the interesting thing is, he may give you a strategy that's just as weird as the one he gave to Joshua. Why? Because God's ways are not man's ways. God's ways are far above our ways. And, and I have to be honest with you, I think that a lot of the battles that Christians are fighting today, they're doing it by the wisdom of man rather than the wisdom of God. And, and when we do that, we can fail. We need to listen to God. We need to ask him, how do you want me to approach this? What do you want me to do? Joshua listened to Jesus and he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. He could have easily looked at it and go, what? Are you kidding while we're circling around right here, they're going to stand up there on the wall. They're just going to, ooh, boy, you wish you weren't sitting in the first row there, huh? <laughs> he, they could pick us off, but he didn't. He didn't question God's strategy at all. He just obeyed. And we need to use God's strategies. We need to listen to him. We need to follow his instructions. He may give you a very strange instruction. There's many times in my life where God has just out of the clear blue sky said, go over and talk to this person. And I'm like, no, God, please don't make me do that. And then you do, and guess what? You lead a person to the Lord. Listen for his strategy. Don't do it man's ways. I, I have to say, I think a lot of the church today is doing things man's way. I really do. I think we're trying to use a lot of strategies that come from other places rather than from the Holy Spirit. Because it seems to work. Even Christian organizations who are raising funds sometimes, you know, I hate to say it again, but, you know, they use man's ways to try to motivate you to do it. And I, I can't say where that line is always drawn. I always just say, well, you know what, Lord, you speak to him, you talk to him, you tell him. But I just think it's so important to at least ask ourselves, am I doing this my way or am I doing it God's way? Lesson number four here. Joshua walked by faith, not by sight, trusting in God's word to him. And 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. We must always trust in what God's word says. Now, we don't always get it the way Joshua did. We don't always get this face-to-face -face encounter but you know, in prayer and in study of God's word, he will give us instructions. He will tell us what to do. And we must always trust what his word says above our own thoughts, above our own emotions, our own opinions. What does God's word say? And did you notice again that when Joshua listened to Jesus, he didn't question the orders. Now, I'm not saying he would have been wrong. Moses questioned God's orders a lot, didn't he? But I think, if you think about that, Joshua had learned from Moses. Joshua knew that sometimes Moses was like, had these discussions with God. But guess what? God always won. Maybe Joshua thought, well, I'm not going to be like Moses. It's a waste of time to argue with him. He's going to win the argument. And eventually, I'm going to do what he says. So listen to God's word. And then Joshua, after he listened to God's word, he carried out the orders to a T. He walked by faith, not by sight. If he was walking by sight, I don't know that he could have done what he did. So I think we have to ask ourselves a question. Do we respond to the Lord's calling to us in the way that Joshua did that very day? Or do we just always question what God has to say to us? Do we always question well, is God going to be with me in this or not? We always question, is God going to bring victory in this or not? I just think that the biggest lesson we can learn today is to respond the way that Joshua did. To know that we can put our faith in God's word when he speaks to us, when he, when he tells us what we need to do, when he gives us a strategy for a battle, a battle that he's called us to, that we have to walk by faith. And then we have to obey without question. But as we do that, we should respond like Joshua did, knowing Joshua knew this victory was assured. By faith, he knew 
God had given him this victory. God's going to bring about the victory in your battles as well. Again, it may not always look like what you think it should, but he will bring about the victory as we walk by faith, as we desire to follow God the way that that Joshua did. And I'm going to ask the the worship team to uh, come on up right now. They're going to end in a song that I've asked them to do this morning. But uh, but as they're coming up, I want to ask you this, because there may be some of you here this morning, maybe you haven't crossed over the Jordan yet. Maybe you haven't taken that step of faith that says, I'm going to walk in in a new life, one that's dominated by the Spirit rather than by the flesh. Maybe you're a Christian even, but you've never fully surrendered your heart to the Lord where you say, I'm going to take this step over now. I'm going to quit allowing myself to be be dominated by the ways of the world, by the ways of the flesh, by man's strategies rather than God's. I want to walk in this new life according to the Spirit. You know, if you think of it, if, if you're not doing that, you're fighting against the captain of the host of the Lord. And you want to be on his side. You know, when Joshua asked that, that question, are you for me or against me? And he's, no, no, no. You don't understand. You need to be for me. That's the question that's being asked this morning. Are you for Jesus? Are you surrendered to him and to his will this morning? And maybe you've never even encountered Jesus yet like Joshua did. Maybe, maybe you've never had that time where you've asked Jesus to be the Lord of your life. If that's you this morning, I'm, I'm just going to ask this morning that you would make today that day. That today you would ask Christ into your life that, that you would be assured of the victory in your life because Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sin and to give you that victory over death. A victory that gives you life eternal, life spent with God. And if that's you this morning, as I pray this morning, I'm just gonna lead you in a prayer, and I pray that you would pray that prayer this morning, and that you would put your faith and your trust in the Lord today. So Heavenly Father, just ask that uh, you would be speaking to anyone this morning that, that needs to hear this, Lord. For those believers who have maybe just dipped their foot in the Jordan. They haven't crossed over yet. And Lord, so often they're just afraid to follow you into battle. Lord, I just pray that today you would strengthen them and that they would make a decision to follow you fully, that they would surrender their life to you fully like Joshua had and that they would obey your instructions to them, God. And Lord, for those this morning here that may not know you, maybe they've never made a decision to follow you. I just pray that you speak to their heart this morning. And if that's you this morning and you want to come to Christ this morning, you can do that right now. You don't have to wait. And you can just say a prayer or something along the lines of this. Jesus, I see that you are God. And I see, Lord, that I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And so, Lord, I ask you today to be my Savior and to be my Lord. I want to put my trust in you this morning by faith, Lord. I want to receive you. I want to ask you into my life. And Lord, I want you to dominate my life. I want you to be the Lord of my life, to be the captain of the host for me. And I thank you, Lord, that you gave your life that I might come into this relationship with you, this new relationship. In Jesus' name, amen.